Well, I hope you have your Bibles with you. I really love the sound of opening up these Bibles. So let's get our Bibles open to Matthew chapter 6. You probably should have a crease in it by now if you've been in this series. Uh, we're going to be in this, the uh, Matthew chapter 5 through 7 through the end of October. So open up, if you would, to Matthew chapter 6. If you're using one of those Bibles in a pew right in front of you, that blue one, I think it's page 810 or maybe 811. Now, if you have them open, it's just a very brief pre-introduction. Did you get that word, pre-introduction? That's kind of odd. I'm not even yet ready to introduce what we're going to be doing. I'm going to tell you a story in a minute. But let me give you a pre-introduction, and that is this. Look in your outline in that bulletin, if you have one in front of you, and you're going to, you're going to notice there's no points one, two, and three, or four. All I'm really doing in this sermon is just flowing through the Word of God, the, the, the prayer that Jesus teaches, and we're going to look at it phrase by phrase, and I'm going to explain it. I'm not interjecting any of my way of structuring it. We're just simply going to let the Word of God breathe. We're going to let Jesus teach us how to pray. And I want you to do one more thing. I want you to look a little bit ahead or maybe a little bit behind. I want you to look at verse 5 for a second. We looked at this last week. And I want you to see the first four words. And when you pray, verse 5. And I just want to emphasize for a moment, not if you pray. See, Jesus is teaching us how to pray. He's teaching his disciples. This entire sermon is aimed at his disciples. And where he is right now in the sermon is he's teaching us the commands that he has for all those who live in the kingdom of God. If you're a Christian, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ exclusively, for the hope of your salvation, then you are a believer, you are a disciple. He has taken you out of the kingdom of this world, and he has put you into the kingdom of God to work and to serve and to enjoy. So if you live in the kingdom of God, how must you live? How must I live? The, the, almost the entire rest of the Sermon on the Mount is going to be a series of commands, one after another. We just saw the command two weeks ago, how to give to the needy. We've got this command that we looked at last week, we're going to finish today, how do we pray to our Heavenly Father? And then next week, how do we fast? Probably fasting is a bit of an alien thing for a lot of us. Pastor Matthew's going to bring this out next week. He's done a lot of studying on this. I can't wait to, to hear this myself. I'm going to learn a lot. And I think you are as well. So that's the pre-introduction. I'm going to explain the words of Jesus, nothing fancy, very simple. And he's going to teach us how to pray. This is a command to learn how to pray. And this is the final thing I'm going to say before we get going. None of us, me included, have arrived at a prayer warrior. We have a long ways to go. This is one of the areas that I am personally in great, great need of learning how to grow in, how to pray, how to become somebody who is often on my knees, whether that's literally or figuratively, in the presence of my Heavenly Father, that the Spirit of God is persuading my soul of the love of the Father. That's what I need. I think that's probably what you need, and this is what Jesus is going to teach. 
In one region of Africa, the first converts to Christianity were very diligent about praying. Now, I want you to hear this true story. The believers each had their own special place. It was outside the village, and they would go to pray in solitude all by themselves. And the villagers reached these special prayer rooms, these places of solitude, by using their own private footpaths through the brush. And when the grass had begun to grow over some of these trails, it was evident that the person to whom that path belonged was really not praying very much. And because these new Christians, while they were very concerned about one another's spiritual welfare, there sprang up a very unique custom. Now I'm telling you this is a true story. Whenever anyone noticed an overgrown prayer path, he or she would go to the person whose path who be, that path belonged to, and they would lovingly warn by saying this, friend, there is grass on your path. Now, I wonder if God, if he used that type of encouragement for us, how many of us right now, let's just be super honest, how many of us would right now hear God saying, friend, there is grass on your path? Because you're not often deeply, longingly, in prayer with your Heavenly Father. This part of the sermon is aimed, and the goal of Jesus is to move us onto that path, get us walking that path, back to that prayer room, long and often in the presence of the Father in prayer. You see, the prayer that Jesus taught us, and we're going to read it, we're going to actually just work right through it. At the end of this, we're going to stand up and we're going to recite it. The prayer that he taught us, it's not a formula. Now, I grew up saying this. This is one of the ways that we closed our church service, all the way from when I was a little boy. And I knew it by heart. But this prayer that we're going to look at, called the Lord's Prayer, it's not a formula, it's an invitation to meet with our Heavenly Father. And it lifts the weary eyes of our hearts to the very heights of the glory and the love that God has for every one of his children. Now let me just say something very quickly and then we're going to start working through this. Nobody is ever called a child of God unless they have put their faith in him. You know that, right? He's never called anybody who is a non-believer one of his children. Not anywhere in scripture. Nowhere. Every single time you see that word, the children of God... It is a special designation that belongs to the Christian, to the disciple, to the one who has put their faith in Jesus and has a relationship with the Father in heaven. And this prayer is meant to be able to take us who walk through this weary world that is constantly attacking our faith. It's meant to be able to get us back into the presence of our Heavenly Father and once again let the Spirit of God persuade us God's love for you is incredibly deep. And his power for you is complete. So we look at this prayer, and we're going to start it in verse 9. And I want you to look at it with me if you would. Pray then like this, our Father. Let's just stop right there. Let's just look at those two words. Remember, Jesus is teaching us how to pray. 
being able to pray to our Father, it's a powerful, it's a freeing reality. We are Christian. We are the, the adopted children of God. And I want you to see on the screen this quote by J.I. Packer in his most famous book, Knowing God. He wrote this. He said, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. Do you realize, Christian, that the Bible and the New Testament particularly gives us two yardsticks to measure the love of the Father? Have you ever wondered just how deep, how big, how wide, how long is the love of God? Well, there's two yardsticks in the New Testament. This is how you can measure it. The first one is the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. That the Father so loved us, he would send his only son to die. Now, you've remembered that, you've memorized that, you've heard that since a toddler. And sometimes that gets so rote in your mind, you lose the significance. Really, see what kind of love the Father has for us? Well, look what he did. He sent Jesus, his son, to die in our place that we might live. That's one of the yardsticks, but there's another one. The other one is this mysterious theological word that we're all familiar with because it's very earthy. It's very part, much part of our culture. It's the word adoption. That's a word in the New Testament all the way through it. See, the Father, the Heavenly Father, adopts us as His children, And he brings us into his family. And when he brings us into his family, the Bible says that he puts a seal on us with the Holy Spirit. In other words, he signs the adoption papers, but more than that, he sends the Holy Spirit to live inside the heart of every believer. Listen, you come to God through Christ, you're not on your own the rest of your life. You don't just have to figure out how to live this Christian life on your own and just somehow just you know, figure it out and understand it. You've got the Spirit of God that lives inside of you and all of His power is at work. And what He's doing, the Spirit of God, is giving you the want to and the power to do what we ought to do. That's adoption. And the Spirit of God is our down payment. You know what that means, friends? I want you to put it in inheritance language for a moment. You know, typically you don't get an inheritance until your parent dies. That's the way it it works, almost always. But not with God. What God has done is given us a down payment. The inheritance is coming now. The blessings of God and the joy and the rewards of serving Him and loving Him, they're coming now. This is how you can have peace in the middle of a storm. That's one of the inherited blessings that God has given to you and given to me. So the inheritance is coming now. Well, the Spirit of God that comes down into our hearts is a down payment promising what one day is going to be ours and lavish, lavish inheritance excitement. I mean, this is going to be amazing. One day you're going to get all the blessings that Jesus Christ now enjoys. He's going to give all of those to you. And listen, it's not... Corvettes and Camaros and motorcycles and big homes and boats. It's absolutely no more struggle with sin. It's no more struggle with illness and cancer and suffering. 
No more relational breaches. No more divorce. No more getting angry at God. No longer looking at porn. No longer cheating on your taxes. No longer slandering and gossiping. That's going to be an incredible inheritance. You're going to be made like Jesus. And you're going to live with him for eternity. See, that's all the promises that are bound up in adoption so that we can pray our Father with confident bragging praise, kind of like that little book, Our Dad the Magnificent, one of my favorites. But unlike the book of that title where the son tells tall tales to his friend about his own dad, you remember Alex, the little boy in there? Well, our Father truly exceeds all the tales that we could ever tell. But look at what Jesus says as he teaches us to pray. Look at the next two words. Our Father in heaven. Now listen, it's a really wonderful balance here. Our Father is the relational part. The heaven is his powerful, wonderful part. You know what it does when you pray to our Father in heaven? All of a sudden the eyes of your heart look upward. To someone greater than you, someone who has power that you don't have, someone that has the future in his hand that you don't know what's going to happen, someone that's got all the pain under control. He sits on the throne, he is in heaven, he rules over all. The Bible calls it transcendent, or theologically it's called transcendent. The Bible calls it the king of kings, our sovereign God, greater than us. And he reigns over all of our problems. Can you imagine really learning and really truly being convinced that God truly does reign over every problem you will ever encounter? You see, this is the power of prayer. When you go down into that secret room on the path, wherever that might be, to your place that is private, and you go into that that time with your Heavenly Father, the Spirit of God begins to remind your soul, your Father loves you, he's adopted you into his family, and he is in heaven. He sees everything. He knows exactly what you're going through. He has the power to endure you through it and to bring you out on the side of blessing. See, he's our father in heaven. And he loves us. He sees our motives in our heart. He sees everything that we do. You cannot... Hide yourself from his eyes. The truth is that he is our loving father who sees all and it drives us to voluntary truthfulness. Now listen, if you're like me, and I have actually done this and it's been a rebuke from God in my heart, have you ever tried to spin yourself before God? Have you ever tried to make yourself look a little bit better or soften the blow or justify something? Listen, people did it all through the Bible. I don't think we would be unique in in doing that. See, our Father in heaven sees everything yet loves us. And he loves us enough to not leave us the way that we are today. He's always doing something to make us more like Christ, to bring his blessings more to us. It's our Father in heaven. But not only does it turn our eyes upward to the one who is greater than us, it turns our eyes inward to our own need for him. And not only does it turn our eyes inward, our Father in heaven, listen to this, it turns our eyes 
forward, knowing that one day we're going to be with him. There will be a rest for eternity. There will no longer be all of this suffering and watching our loved ones die. There will be a time where there is no more sorrow and there is no more death. You know, one of the most encouraging stories I've ever heard was a girl, a lady named Florence Chadwick. See, Florence in 1952 stepped into the waters of the Pacific Ocean off Catalina Island. She was determined to swim to the shore of mainland California. Now, that is mind-boggling to me. But she'd already been the first woman to swing, swim the English Channel both ways. So she was a pr prodigious swimmer. She was incredibly strong. But on that day in the Pacific Ocean, the weather was foggy. It was chilly. She could hardly see the boats that were accompanying her. And yet still she swam for 15 hours. And when she begged to be taken out of the water, all along the way, her mother in one of those boats right alongside her told her, Florence, you can do it. You're close to making it. Just keep swimming. Yet finally, physically, this is a true story, emotionally exhausted, Florence Chadwick stopped swimming and was pulled out of the Pacific Ocean into one of those boats. It wasn't until she got onto the boat above the line of the horizon of water that she discovered that the shore was visible. It was less than a half a mile away. At a news conference the next day, and I'm going to quote her, she said this, All I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. Now, Christian, do you know what God is doing when you're praying to our Father in heaven? The Spirit of God is persuading you you can make it. You can make it to the eternal shores of heaven. You can endure in your faith. You can say no to that temptation. And if you fail, you can ask for the God of mercy to forgive you. And he will restore you, which is the reason that he gives mercy to us. Keep swimming. This is the power of prayer. C.S. Lewis once said that if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. He said, aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. But if you aim at earth, you're not going to get either. See, praying to our Father in heaven, here's what it does. It moves our eyes upward to his greatness, inward to the reality of our great need for him, and forward to the joy-filled eternity that lies before us. But the problem is, for most of us, it's that we're spiritual haolis. Now let me explain what a spiritual haoli is. You might be scratching your head going, I've never heard of that before. It's actually a custom in Hawaii, or at least it began in Hawaii. That's a word that the Hawaiians used to call people from the mainland. But it originated, listen to this, and this is sad actually, it originated when the Christians arrived to the islands. I'm going to read it to you. Before the missionaries came, one Hawaiian explained, my people used to sit outside their temples for a long time meditating and, 
and preparing themselves before entering. Now, isn't that amazing? How often do we prepare ourselves before we come to church to worship our God? Then he writes, or then he wrote, he says, then they would virtually creep to the altar to offer their petition and afterwards would again sit a long time outside, this time to breathe life into the prayers. But the Christians, when they came to our island and they would go pray, they would just get up, they would utter a few sentences, they would say amen and we're done. And for this reason, my people call them haolis, which means without breath, or those who failed to breathe life into their prayers. So let's be ruthlessly honest with ourselves. You might as well be. Remember, our Father in heaven sees everything. Do you breathe life into your prayers? Is your prayer life breathless? Meaning, is it without vitality? Is it without intimacy? Is it without long times with God? Well, if so, what is the cure? What Jesus gives it to us as we move on in the prayer. Hallowed be your name. So our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Well, what does that actually mean? It means to recognize and treat God as holy different, other than us, distinct. So the word hallowed means most simply different. So if I were you, I would underline that in your Bible and put it in your margin. That's what the word means, different. Hallowed be your name. His name is holy. His names reveal aspects of his being. All of God's names do. Every single name of God has a particular part of his attributes and his character that he is revealing through the name. So hallowed be his name, distinct and different. Holy is his name, the aspects of his being, his character, his nature, his personality. And there's no greater name than Jesus Christ because it is in him that we see the clearest and the fullest picture of who God is. And this is what Jesus, or this is what Jesus said in John 17, 6, I have manifested your name, Father, to the people whom you gave me out of the world. So listen, if you want to know what God is like, I mean, come on, haven't you ever said, God, if you would just come down and sit in a chair next to me, then I could finally know you. Well, God's going to say back to you, I have revealed myself, and I've revealed myself most clearly through Jesus, my son. He is the exact representation of me. When you know Jesus, you know God the Father. See, Martin Luther once answered the question of how we hallow God's name. He said it's when our life and our doctrine, our beliefs, are truly Christian. So if we want to breathe life into our prayers, then we need to learn to hallow God's name. Lord, hallowed be your name. This is a petition. This is actually a request. This is not an attribute of praise. This is actually the first petition in the Lord's Prayer. God, Father, help me to hold you different and distinct and above everybody and everything. 
Help me to live in such a way that my life reveals your greatness. That's truly how you do it. So, so I'm going to answer the question very simply. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's a request. How do you breathe life into your prayer? You begin to look at your life. Are you living in such a way as God is clearly being known? That's how you breathe life into your prayers. So my reputation, the way that people see me, the way that I work, the way that I am faithful in my friendship, the way that I serve, the way that I sacrifice, the way that I honor other people above myself, all of those ways make God's name great. That's how we hallow God's name. So God, help us to do it. The second request is this one, your kingdom come. This is simply and gloriously to ask God to bring his reign on earth to its fullest conclusion. That he would turn those who are living and locked into sin, that he would turn them to his mercy, that he would enable them to trust and obey. Now listen, if you're here right now, and I don't, we've got a lot of people here, so likely there's probably some people here that have not yet truly put their faith in Jesus Christ. You might be thinking that you're a good person, that you've done a lot of good things, or usually it goes like this, I've never done anything really, really bad. And so you might be thinking, well, that day when at the end of my life and I stand before God and He's going to look at me and say, you know what? You didn't do anything really, really bad, and you did a lot of pretty good things, so come on in and enjoy eternity. Listen, that's never going to happen. The Bible is completely consistent on this. There is only one reason that you will ever go to hell. It's if you reject Jesus Christ as your Savior. Bad people go to heaven. Do you realize that? People that do really bad things and put their faith in Jesus as their Savior and are forgiven are all in heaven. But if you reject him, you will not be in heaven. You will be in hell. The only reason you will ever be in heaven, the only reason you will ever spend eternity with God is not if you do a lot of really good things and not if you don't do any of the really bad things. It's if you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, accepting his death in your place and his life for you. If his kingdom is going to come, and it is, it often is coming one saved person at a time. But this isn't only a request, your kingdom come, just for the unsaved. It includes the children of God as well, the Christians as well. It's praying, God, give us a greater understanding of kingdom living. Give us a greater desire to see you reign. Help us to give more of our lives to serve you in your kingdom. Let us be faithful so that we would hear one day, well done, good and faithful servant. So, Father, bring history to its end. Send back to us our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Usher in the fullness 
of your kingdom, your kingdom come. But then on the heels of this, look at your Bible, he writes, or he says to us, Jesus does, pray that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know what Martin Luther said about this? He called it a fearful prayer. How often have you seen this as a fearful prayer? I'll tell you why he did. Because it's a prayer that puts us right in the very center of God's refining, purifying sights. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Our squirming, sinful flesh. Now what does that mean? That sounds so archaic. Well, the moment that you put your faith in Jesus Christ exclusively, no other way to be saved and to be, having, to be given eternal life, the very moment you put your faith in Jesus, what he does is he puts a mortal blow to your flesh. And that flesh is that part of you, that part of me, that says, God, I don't want to do what you say. I want to do what I want. I want to defy you. I want to sit on the throne. I want to rule my life. I want to be the king and the God of my life. And I want to dictate what's going to happen. That's our flesh. It's that spiritual part of us that lives in rebellion. But the moment you put your faith in Jesus, he delivered a mortal blow to that. It is dying. It's not yet done away with. It's in battle with us with the Spirit of God. You are battling it today. You are battling it tomorrow. You will battle your flesh until the very day that you die where He redeems you completely, making you fully into the likeness of His Son. But right now, our sinful flesh powerfully wants to do our will rather than God's. So to pray, your will be done, is a battle cry to your flesh. And you're praying, God, may your will become my will. You know what your flesh prays? God, may my will become your will. This is a complete reversal of that. See, God doesn't just want obedience. He wants us to want to obey him. And he works in us, changing our desires to be his desires. Now, I actually had some pushback on this not too long ago. And I understand it, I get it. The pushback went like this. You know, we we need to obey whether we want to or not. And while I would agree with that, the gospel might not agree with that. Or at least the gospel would put it a little bit differently, and it would put it like this in Psalm 51. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. What does God like? Well, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. God truly wants you to want to do what he wants. Can you you say that? I'm not sure I can say that again. God truly wants for you to want to do what he wants. And so what the gospel is doing in your life, Christian, and in mine as well, it's incredible, it's a miracle, he's changing your desires, because God doesn't want people to do the right things grudgingly. Do you like that, parents, when your children do that? 
You tell them to clean the front room and they do it by slamming things around. That doesn't please you. That's not honoring you. But God says, listen, I want you to do the right things. I know you can't do it with a willful heart. So I'm going to help your will become my will. I'm going to put my desires into your heart so that you want to do what I want you to do. Your will be done is a prayer of active participation in God's will. It's not passive resignation. Bless the Lord, O you angels. By the way, listen to this. This is how the angels serve God. Bless the Lord, O you angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. There's a bless the Lord part, a volitional part, a heart of the angel that says, I want to bring honor, I want to bring eulogy, is what the word means, to the heavenly Father. And I want to, out of that heart, do all that he commands. Now let me just really, really simply put it this way. You ready? This is as simple as I know how to say it. God wants his children to desire to obey him. And in order to help us do it, he actually pours his desires into our hearts, changing our hearts, so that we have the want to to do what we ought to. Listen, if you don't want to do what God is telling you to do, you know what you need to do? Listen, I'm going to tell you, this is exactly what you need to do. You need to get into the Lord's Prayer. You need to get into your prayer room. And you, just, you need to pray, God, your will be my will. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth in Tim Ackley's heart as it is in heaven. That's the power of this prayer. This prayer is all about transformation. It's all about God changing us as we sit in his presence, adoring him, learning to love him and to communicate to him and listen to him. But how do our hearts and our desires really align with right, obedient behavior? Now listen, every parent, every parent wants to know how you do that. How do you get your children to have a heart to do what you're asking them to do? Here it is, you ready? Give us this day our daily bread. See, God wants us to obey his will and do the work of his kingdom. He provides all that we need in order to do it. The fact that we have to ask for it, give us this day our daily bread. The fact that we have to ask for it tells you, tells me, you, we cannot provide this for ourselves. Listen, daily bread is not something that we can give ourselves. It must be something that God gives to us. We cannot provide ourselves with spiritual nourishment. There is no generic equivalent to this daily bread. There is no substitute to it. There's no knockoff bread. There's no other source. It is, this is not only a request that God would provide for me. It is a commitment to, to be part of how he answers that very same request for others. That's why the very first prayer, a word in this prayer is our. Did you get that pronoun? There's not one singular pronoun in this entire prayer. There's no I, there's no me. This is a prayer that convincingly persuades us I'm part of your spiritual journey. You're part of my spiritual journey. 
I need you, you need me. We need each other in the family of God. So daily bread is partly, God, I need this, and it's in part, I'm going to take the daily bread you give me, and I'm going to give it to other people. Well, how do you do that, and what's that look like? It's the physical sustenance, this daily bread, that we need to live, obviously, including all the necessities in life that enable us to do God's will. Did you hear that? It's the things you need. Can I just say this super quick? Ready? Time out. There's basically almost no true needs that we have. I would really encourage you this week to write down what you really think are the needs in your life and then let God speak into them. And I think almost every one of them, he's going to cross off the list. You really don't need that. You need food to live. You need shelter. You don't need people to love you. You don't need to lose weight. You don't need to find your dream job. You don't need, truly, to have a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Listen, what we think our needs are usually very, very inflated and inflamed wants. And they begin to look like needs. But that daily bread is the things that we do truly need in order to live. But listen, look at the other part of that. It's not only what we truly need in order to live, it's what we need in order to serve God faithfully. But this daily bread, at least in the opinion of Augustine, one of the early church fathers, he said it's spiritual food, namely the divine laws which we are to think over and to put into practice each day. So when you're asking for daily bread, you're asking God to give you all that you need so that you can best follow his will. Are you ever at a crossroads? There's a bit of a fog in the intersection. You're going, God, I don't know which job to take. God, I know I needed to, to decide a, a major in college, but I don't know what it is. God, I've got to decide if I'm going to marry this person. Should I date this person? Listen, God's going to give you daily bread. He's going to give you all that you need in order to do all that he wants you to do. And that daily bread may come in the form of the word of God straight to you. It may come through a fellow Christian that's encouraging you. It might come directly from the Spirit of God as he streams into your life the peace or the lack of peace. Daily bread is everything you need in order to do all that God is going to ask you to do. And he is faithful to give it. And nowhere, now look at the next part of this prayer and you'll understand this, nowhere is the need for this bread greater than the next petition. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now listen, this is not a salvation prayer. For the Lord's Prayer can only be meaningfully prayed by believers. It's a prayer that God would cancel our debts. Those things that we have done wrong that really at the very bottom of it were against Him. He's, we're asking Him to forgive us our sins. But look what He writes. Look what Jesus preached. As we have also, also have forgiven our debtors. Forgive us our debts as confession. 
In 1 John 1.9, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But notice Jesus teaches us to pray that God would forgive us. Now listen, this is so hard to hear. That God would forgive us in the same exact way that we forgive other people. Do you understand how hard it is to pray this prayer? Do you understand what it is that we're praying when we pray this prayer? Augustine, he said, this is the terrible petition. So it really begs us to ask, is there anybody right now in your life that you will not forgive? Maybe something done to you 30 years ago, five years ago, yesterday, and you are persisting, maybe you swept it into the dark corners of your soul, but you have not canceled the debt. Listen, if you're going to pray, Father, forgive me, forgive us as we forgive our debtors, that's a frightening prayer. That's why Spurgeon wrote, unless you have forgiven others, you read your own death warrant when you repeat the Lord's Prayer. It's foolish to confess sins and ask God to cleanse us from unrighteousness if we refuse to forgive the debt that others have incurred upon us. If we will not forgive others, if we hold on to our grudges and we bar them from our grace and our fellowship, even for some of us, even from our physical presence, then we will be barred from the sweet fellowship of the Father. Now, I'm going to underscore that so that you do not misunderstand what I'm saying. Christian, I am not saying this, that if somebody hurts you terribly and you're struggling to forgive them, that you're going to lose your salvation. Listen, you cannot lose the salvation that God has freely given to you. It is impossible. What I am saying is this. If you bar people from, through, through unforgiveness from your fellowship... God will bar you from his fellowship and you will not receive the peace that could be yours. You will not have the joy that could be yours. You will not get the blessings that could be yours. Why? Because you are not forgiving others. And God will forgive you in the same way. But a proof, now you listen, a proof that we are the children of our Heavenly Father is the glad willingness to give the same grace and mercy to other people that He has given to us in such large quantities. Do you understand that's one of the ways that people say, oh, you know what? You're related to God the Father, aren't you? You belong to His family because of the way that we forgive. See, daily bread is needed as we ask the very next part of this prayer, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. An important part of prayer is asking our Heavenly Father for the strength to resist the pull of sin. Do you know that God is faithfully going to give us a way out of temptation? Listen, this is something, Christian, you can never say honestly, sincerely, and accurately. Well, you know what? I had the temptation and God didn't give me a way out. That is never going to happen. He will give you the way out. It may be that your computer freezes 
It may be a phone call from a friend right when you were going to do something you know he didn't want you to do. It might be a devotional that comes in that day. It may be the word of God that morning. It may be the spirit of God whispering into your soul at that precise moment. Listen, it may even be a car accident. It might be anything that will prevent you from going down the path of temptation. He will always give you the way out. But will will we take it? See, the Greek word for temptation can mean either a difficult trial or a solicitation to do evil. And I want you to understand that. You've got to remember this, all right? This is absolutely, hugely important. The word here for temptation, and lead us not into temptation... It can mean either a difficult trial or a solicitation to do evil. God is holy. God will never, and he can not ever, solicit us to do evil. God cannot be tempted by sin, James says, nor can he tempt anyone. So God cannot tempt you to sin. So if there's a solicitation to do something that is evil, it's not coming from God, it's coming from Satan. But God will allow, and sometimes God will allow these tests to come into our lives in order to prove our faith genuine. Now let me tell you the difference between God the Father and Satan, our adversary. The devil always aims that a temptation will prove your faith a failure. The Father always aims that a test will prove your faith genuine. Do you see the motivation? The Father allows a trial and a test in order to prove that your faith is real and that it can endure with his help. The devil says, no, I'm going to bring this temptation. I'm going to lead them down this path to evil. I'm going to prove that their faith is a failure. And God helps us by delivering us, which means more than to rescue or save someone. I want you to hear this. This is so important. To me, honestly, it's my favorite part of this message. He does more than just deliver us, or he helps us rather by delivering us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That word deliver, it means to draw to yourself. It means to draw to oneself rather. So here we've got the name Satan, which literally means to separate. And we've got the power of God, which means he's going to draw us to himself. So when he delivers us from evil, he's going to, he's going to draw us to himself and away from the one who is soliciting us to do evil, who is trying to separate us from God. And amazingly, Satan will separate you from other Christians before he separates you from God. You know, I used to think, Henry Ward Beecher wrote, that the Lord's Prayer was a short prayer, but as I live longer and see more of life, I believe there is no such thing as getting through it. You don't get through this prayer. If a man, in praying that prayer, were to be stopped by every word until he had thoroughly prayed it, it would take him a lifetime. Now here's my closing admonition to you. Last week, I invited all of you 
to take two days in the coming week and don't make any requests at all to the Father. Just sit there and speak to Him and exalt Him. Now, I had email after email and text after text and phone call after phone call all week, even today, from people that said, I cannot do this. I tried. I made it about 30 seconds. And then all of a sudden, I'm asking for things. Listen, let me remind you and dovetail it with Henry Ward Beecher's statement. This is a lifelong journey learning how to pray this prayer. You don't let it end in despair. That's why I began that way. Don't let it end in despair. Let it bring you to hope that God is going to teach you to pray this prayer. So pour yourself into it. Study it. Let it study you and expose things in you that need to be exposed. But let's learn together to pray the way that Jesus taught. Amen.